Alright, we are in our, towards the end of our summer series called What Does the Bible Say About? Uh, I'm preaching this week and one more next week and then Pastor Jack is going to preach our Labor Day weekend sermon and then it'll be time for a new series and I'm really, really excited about what we're going to be doing in the fall. It's different from anything we've done before and I think it'll be a lot of fun. But we, uh, we still need to wrap up this series. I told you last week that I've kind of been putting off some of them for <laughs> the end of the summer because uh, I wanted to make sure that I was thoughtful and prayerful about putting them together. And today, today is an interesting topic. Uh, it's different from others. Uh, we're talking about what the Bible says about grief and loss. This is one of the first topics that was requested, and it's come up several times since then. And this topic is different because in the past, we brought up topics that may, maybe you really wanted to hear a sermon on, but you also may not have wanted to hear a sermon on it. You may not have wanted me to get into it from up here, but you definitely, it's something you've talked about around the dinner table. It's something you've argued with people about on the internet and that kind of a thing. There are things that are being talked about. But grief and loss is a little different. Maybe you wanted me to talk about this, maybe you didn't want me to talk about this, but it's not something that we are looking to talk about most of the time. And so, um, this is just an interesting conversation for us to have, and also because, uh, well, we'll get into this as I talk about the question behind the question, but we're all affected by this, but in different ways. And we're in a different place in this journey. You know, we might each be in a different place in this journey, and I don't know where you specifically are at. But um, this is something that we need to talk about. And so we're going to start, let me just get into the, the question behind the question, why we need to talk about this, and then we'll look at what the Bible says. The first thing we need to observe about grief is that grief is universal. Okay? First of all, we cannot escape it. I was listening to a sermon about grief as I was prepared for this, and he made a really good point. He said, you know, there are people in the world who will go their entire lives without experiencing the, the things that, like, the, the really high point experiences we have. Like, people who will never experience professional success, maybe people who will never experience love, people who will never experience wealth or accomplishment or any of the, the highs. Some people, you know, in the world have, have just none of those positive experiences. But what really unites us, what everybody has in common, is we will all experience grief. Grief is something you cannot escape. You cannot, you cannot have enough money or enough privilege. You cannot, you cannot cut, push yourself away from other people enough. You cannot isolate yourself enough to avoid it. Grief is the universal human experience. You also can't control it. You can't decide when you're going to grieve, how much you're going to grieve, or how long you're going to grieve. It's grief in a, in a very big way is something that happens to you. And, and you just ha it, it happens to you, kind of almost like a, an injury or a disease happens to you, and you're not in control of it, which is something we really don't like. We don't like to not be in control of something. And you know what we like even less than not being in control of something is not being able to fix something. And you can't fix grief. As much as I would like to be able to give you this three-step plan to get over grief, there's no three-step plan. They don't all start with the same letter. It's not how grief works. You can't fix it. And so this is something that we will all go through. I don't know where you're at. You could be staring it right in the face right now, or it could be the farthest thing from your mind. Right? When you're in my age, we tend to think that it's never going to happen, you know, that we're never going to face grief. Um, and you may be on anywhere in that spectrum, but you will face it. It is the universal human experience. 
And that, but the other thing that's significant about grief is that grief is uncomfortable. And I, when I say that, I mean, obviously, grief itself is painful. To, to have your own grief is painful. But the topic of grief is uncomfortable. And other people's grief is uncomfortable. We don't like to witness grief, and we don't like to discuss grief. How many of you, I'll confess, how many of you are like me, and you have a hard time saying the words dead or died? How many different ways do we have to describe death without using the words dead or died? They passed away. They passed on. They went to be with Jesus. Now, sometimes we're saying that to remind people of where we go, but sometimes we're saying it because we don't want to say the word dead. I'll confess that that word catches in my mouth often when I'm, when I'm talking. We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to see it. In our culture, we have done everything we can to move death away from our, uh, you know, our experience. It used to be like, the, if you've ever looked at how people in like, even if the 1800s dealt with death, it seems super morbid, right? Like, have you seen, they'll take pictures with the dead bodies so they can have one last picture with their loved one. You know, they would have the, when a person dies, they died in the home, usually, if it was known that it was going to happen. And then they would, like, be in the coffin in the front room until they were buried. Like, it was in your face all the time. And now we get it out of, out of vision, out of sight, as much as we possibly can. And it's interesting to me that a lot of times people will talk about religion as if religion is a way of just met, like, trying to avoid the reality of death. But what I see is actually everything in our culture is about avoiding the reality of death. We don't want to talk about it. We don't look at it. And, and it's actually in Scripture. Scripture looks grief square in the face. You've got the book of Job that is 40-plus chapters of just processing pain and suffering. You've got the book of Lamentations that is entirely laments, right? The big, single largest genre of psalm in the book of Psalms is lament. 59 out of 150 psalms. I, I forget if I, if I said this the first time up here, so we've heard this before, but can you imagine what it would be like if Christian radio had that same mix? That 59 out of every 150 songs were laments? But the Bible doesn't shy away from it at all. Now, on, on the other hand, for us, this is something that's unfortunate, but it's true, so it's not necessarily blaming anyone. This is how we all are. We are uncomfortable with other people's grief, and we will only be able to gr- fully grieve alongside someone for a certain amount of time. It tends, this is just, oh, naturally, that's what happens. And how long you're able to grieve with someone depends on how close you are to them. The people you're really close to, you can walk with them a, long, a much longer time before it starts to wear on you, but... You know, you, you, you will walk with a spouse or a child through grief much longer than an acquaintance, right? And at a certain point, you st- it starts to get really hard to continue to grieve with them. And if you're a person going through grief, you may have experienced this, that people, you know, you're, like, the people that are grieving with you, it tends to reduce over time because it's uncomfortable for us. But the Bible talks about it a lot. So it is something that we need to talk about. And ultimately, when we go to Scripture, the answer that I think we're looking for, there's two answers that we want. Number one is how do we find comfort in our grief? And number two is how do we share comfort with others? Because you may have experienced this, that you know the gospel backwards and forwards, but you've tried to comfort somebody in their grief and the words have done nothing. It just hasn't worked. You could tell that nothing's getting through. You think, well, if I know the gospel, I should 
just be able to comfort them. Why isn't this working? So we struggle on both ends, to process our own grief and to give comfort to others. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about that. But in the past, these other sermons have tended to be surveys of what the Bible says in a bunch of different places. I'm not going to do that here. The Bible says a ton about, about grief and suffering, but what I want to do, because this is such an intense experience that touches on every one of us, I'm going to focus on one story in the Gospel of John, because in this story, we see Jesus comforting people, and we can learn both from what he does to comfort, that we can find comfort in what he says to them. We can also learn from what he does, how we can help to comfort others. So what we're going to do is we're going to be in John chapter 11. We're going to spend the whole sermon in John chapter 11. So if you want to follow along in your Bible, feel free. You don't have to do a bunch of flipping around. I know sometimes I go too fast for that. Uh, but we're going to camp out in John chapter 11. And we're going to look at the comfort that Jesus offers and how he offers it to people. The story starts in John 11:1 this way. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So the sisters sent word to, word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, Let us go back to Judea. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Sorry, that last verse doesn't make sense with the part I cut out where they're concerned because Jesus' enemies are near Jerusalem, so he's in danger by going to, to Bethany. That's why. Uh, okay, so here's the thing that I want to do as we go through this story is I want to key in on who Jesus is speaking to and why he says what he says to them. Because Jesus is going to have three different encounters with people, and he is going to give them each a different answer to the problem of suffering. He's going to respond to them in different ways. And I believe that has to do with the differences between the people he's speaking to. So this first encounter is with the disciples. So in order to understand why Jesus speaks to them, the way, why he tells them what he tells them, we have to understand the disciples' role in this story. And the disciples, in the story of the death of Lazarus, the disciples were touched by grief. They knew Lazarus well enough to be challenged by his death. Here's what I mean. They knew him because Jesus loved him. Spent a lot, whenever Jesus went through Jerusalem, we're pretty sure he stayed in Bethany. So they would have known Lazarus. They would have encountered him as they were following Jesus. But they don't, we don't see anything in the story of their expressions of grief. So it seems like they knew him, but they weren't close to him. So they're not really wounded, but they're affected by it. They're, they, it's, they know him well enough that his death creates a, a problem, an intellectual problem. That's the thing. That they, they know him, and they know that he's Jesus' friend, and so it matters to them whether he dies or not. This is similar to, uh, all of us have experienced, uh, have had this kind of connection with grief, just living in a world where we know so much about, uh, you know, there's so much news. Like, if you, you may remember where you were uh, when Kobe Bryant died. If you were aware of that story, that's a, a basketball player who was very well thought of and died in a very tragic 
uh, helicopter accident with his daughter. I've never met Kobe Bryant. I couldn't prove that I've ever been within 500 miles of him. But I remember hearing that, and that was a story that because I'm aware of him, and I have some, some awareness of him and, and the circumstances of that death, it was, it was tragic, and I remember it. Um, and so that creates a challenge. We have to make sense of those kind of experiences because we want our default desires for the world to work so that people, good people, lead long, healthy lives, right? And when a person dies in a way that we don't expect, we don't want for them, that creates a, a little bit of an intellectual crisis that needs to be resolved. Specifically for the disciples, this is really important because Lazarus is a friend of the Messiah. And so for them, even if they're not emotionally touched by Lazarus' death, they need to make sense of the situation. How could Jesus allow a close friend to die? Because when a close friend of the Messiah dies, that's a theological crisis, potentially. Why did Jesus allow Lazarus to die? Did he not want Lazarus to die, but he couldn't stop it? That would be something we need to know. Uh, did he not actually really care about Lazarus because Jesus just uses people and doesn't really love people? It you know, just didn't matter to him? That's something we would want to know. How could Jesus allow his, um, his friend to die? But you'll notice that this is primarily a logical question. It's a, it's a logical issue. It's a way we make sense of the word, world. Um, the, big, the big word is theological, how we understand God and understand our relationship with God. But that is a logical question. So when we see Jesus talk to his disciples, everything he says in this scene is for the benefit of the disciples. And what he's saying is to answer that particular crisis, that particular situation. And here's what he says. Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. So, there's two things he's kind of saying there. First, he says, This sickness will not end in death. Jesus knows Lazarus is going to die, but it's not going to end that way. So, in, in a literal sense, what he's saying is, death is not actually the end of the world. Right? The death isn't the end of the story. And so the sickness is going to lead through death, but it's not going to end in death. Death is not actually the end of the, the, end of the world. Also, the second part tells us God is still in control. This didn't happen because God couldn't stop it. God permitted this to happen, but he is working it according to his plan, so everything is still going according to plan for God. Now, that doesn't mean that God is the author of all the bad things that happened, that he decided, you know what, I really want Lazarus to die here so that I can make a show of bringing him back to life. What it means is that Lazarus, God knew Lazarus was going to die, and he was going to use that to, as part of his plan. His plans are not off-kilter now because Lazarus died. He is still in control. So this is the, the logical, big-picture answer that Jesus gives to the disciples. He gave them the big picture that death is not the end, and God is still in control. And you'll find a lot of language in the Bible that talks about death and suffering makes this point. God is still in control. Death is not the end of the world. Right? But here's the thing. The problem that we run into as Christians when we're comforting people is sometimes this is the only answer that we offer people. And if you happen to be a person uh, here or online who is in the midst of grief, you may be sitting there thinking, that is entirely unsatisfying. That answer like, it may not make you feel any better 
than you did before to get the big picture answer. And unfortunately, sometimes we as Christians, it's the only answer that we give is this big picture answer and say, hey, that's not the end of the world. It's going to be okay. Everything will be all right. And that's what we tell people. Now, what Jesus said in this instance is absolutely true. And yet, it is not the only answer to grief. Because what you'll find is in Jesus' next two encounters, as he gets closer to the center of grief, he doesn't give that same answer again. He gives a different answer. He speaks a different way. So the first thing we learn about grief is that for, for when we are starting to wonder how can... We're, we're, we are challenged by the existence of grief in the world. We're touched by it, but we're not, it's not hitting me. It's not my crisis. The answer to that is God is still in control. It's interesting that sometimes people will act like they've disproven religion because they say, hey, but there can't be a good God and there's suffering in the world. Like, that, that's not news to God's people. Like the first document we know in world history dealing with that problem is actually in the Bible. Like we know about this and, and the Bible discusses it and looks it straight in the face and it tells us God is in control. But the story continues, and Jesus has another encounter as he heads to town. It says, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This encounter, uh, in this encounter, Jesus meets with Mar Martha, and Martha is in a completely different position from the disciples. The effect of Lazarus' death on Martha is completely different than it was on the disciples, because Martha was wounded by grief. She has been hurt. She has been hit by this. This is her brother. She's known him her whole life. She grew up with him. And based on the way the story is told, it's likely that, that Lazarus, Martha, and Mary all uh, still lived in the same home. Ma Martha and Mary, we, uh, they probably weren't married, otherwise they wouldn't, all be, they wouldn't be talked of as a trio so much. So they probably all lived together. So this is not only her, her brother that she grew up with, her roommate, you know, the, the three of them are, are partners. Uh, he's probably the main breadwinner. And Martha's world has just been shaken by this. It has created a crisis in her life. She doesn't know how she's going to, uh, you know, how she's going to make ends meet. She doesn't know how she's going to be happy again without her brother. She, she is being hit square in the chest with this grief. And she comes to Jesus, and you can see by what she says, you can tell where she's at from what she says to Jesus, that she is in a place where Martha needed a solution to her crisis. Because she comes to Jesus and says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But even now, God will, I know God will give you whatever you ask. Like, but I know you can still do something about this, right? Jesus, you can still fix this, right? 
because Martha is facing a crisis of grief, and what she wants is a solution. She wants to know how she can be made whole again. How can I? How can my life be restored? You know, how can I be able to to function again? How can I know that I have a future? She she. She, want, she has a broken world that she, and she wants to know how is it going to be fixed. This is the position that she is in. And notice Jesus doesn't say, hey, death isn't the end of the world. Right? He doesn't approach it. He doesn't say, hey, well, this is going to give God a lot of glory. It's not how he responds to her grief. Because Martha, so, well, sorry, so that's not how he responds. Instead, he says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Martha is in the place of that a lot of people are today, where, uh, yeah, I know in the by and by, good things will happen, right? I know they're in a better place. Which is often the only use people have for religion anymore, is that God has no place in their day-to-day, but all of a sudden you come to it, you know, a loved one dies, and, oh, well, they're in a better place. I have no reason for believing that other than I want it to be true. But I know things are going things after death are good. It's going to be good, and that's that's that vague hope. And that's kind of what Martha is. I I know that good things happen at the end of time. I know, and that's but that's not what she's talking about. That's not the, that's not a fix for her. She's hurting now, and Jesus corrects her. But no, no, no. I'm not talking about some vague pie in the sky or you know a sweet by and by thing that happens at the end. He says, "I am the resurrection and the life." The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. He says, no, I am the resurrection standing right in front of you. This isn't vague, someday stuff. It is, you know, the resurrection does happen someday, but it happens because of Jesus Christ standing right in front of you. Right? That's what he's saying. Is, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's saying to her is, there is hope right now through me. There is a solution. We want to fix grief. And we want, we want to be able to fix grief. And when you're grieving, you want somebody to be able to fix it for you. And Martha is the only person, uh, well, you know, in this case, Martha has the rare opportunity of actually talking to the person who really can fix it face-to-face. And so what happens here is when Jesus responds to her, as she's looking for a solution, Jesus gave her the gospel. He gave her the good news that in Jesus there is hope for all grief to be undone. That there is more available to us than just what human beings can do for each other. That Jesus Christ can comfort us through the Holy Spirit and also that He undoes grief. And some of that process is now. It happens the moment that you give your life to Christ and He comforts you and He puts you back together. Some of it only happens when He has completely undone all, all evil, all grief at the end of time and everything is restored. But it starts today. It starts in knowing Jesus and He offers that, that solution right in front of you in the here and now. So when she is someone who is grieving, she has been hit square in the chest by grief, and she is looking for a solution, Jesus tells her what the solution is. It is Jesus Christ. It is the comfort that God shares through His Spirit and through His people. There is a solution. It doesn't fix things the way we want them to or the timeline we want, them, we want it to. But there is a solution that can be offered through the Gospel. 
Now, you may think, oh, well, if, he, if this is the gospel, he's given to the gospel, then that's the final answer, right? This is, that's the one you give everybody. That is the one-size-fits-all answer that everybody gets, because it's the gospel. So that should satisfy any need that we have. But there's one more part of the story. There's one more encounter that Jesus has. And in that encounter, Jesus does not give this gospel answer. He gives a third answer. This is when he talks to Mary. It says, after Martha had said all of this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and trouble. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Now, when you read Bible stories, oftentimes because it's translated, it's an ancient document that's translated, it can be hard for us to pick up on the emotion or the characterization or the differences in people, but there's actually a pretty interesting portrait being painted here of the differences between Martha and Mary. Martha and Mary are both sisters to Lazarus. They have the same connection. He is their brother. They both lost a brother. And they probably both lost, you know, they probably all three living together, which means they've lost, they both lost this tight relationship. But notice that Mary and Martha react in very different ways. Martha, I would, I would call her a functional griever. She is in grief, she's lost her brother, and yet she was probably the older sister, which means she would have been responsible for running the household. So she receives the guests, she goes out and she talks to Jesus. She is able to receive him officially as a guest. She goes back and talks to Mary on behalf of Jesus. She, she brings Jesus. To, like, she plays the hostess role throughout this. She's functioning. She's grieving deeply, but she's functioning. And if you look at Mary, I would call Mary a non-functioning griever. Mary does not go out to meet Jesus. She knows Jesus. She loves Jesus. She's very close with Jesus, and yet she cannot come up from the house to meet him as she, she, by the cultural standards, should do. And Jesus has to send Martha in to come and get her so he can have the conversation with her. And when she gets to him, she doesn't follow the protocol for when you're meeting a rabbi and when you're greeting someone in your home. She falls on her face. She falls at his feet. And she says something similar to what Martha said. She says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But she doesn't add anything tactful on at the end like Martha did when she said, but I know you can still fix it. Right? That's how Martha handles it. Mary just leaves it. If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. She's not careful with her words. She's not tactful. She is she's just you know, broken. She, she is non-functional in her grief. Pop quiz. What makes the difference between a functional griever and a non-functional griever? I have no idea. And th th this is important. This is important because you may think, oh, I'm a functional griever. You know, I'm, a, I'm the right type of person that I just, I'm always in control. And so when grief hits me, I'm going to be functional. Maybe. 
Maybe not. You may get hit by grief and suddenly not just fall apart and not be able to do anything. You may be a person who falls apart at a paper cut and you think there's no way I'll be able to handle grief. And then it happens, and you are the one who's functional and, and organized and able to keep going and doing things. Um, you may find that one time you were functional and another time you were non-functional. Grief happens to you. You're not in control of it. You won't be able to decide which one you're going to be. And I say that to give you permission to be whichever one you end up being. There's nothing wrong with Mary and right with Martha that they respond in these different ways. Jesus doesn't tell her to buck up and be more like your sister. They're grieving in different ways for reasons we don't know, we can't control. It's just how grief is presenting in their lives, and that is okay. Grief happens to you. It's not something that you decide. And remember that also when you're comforting people, because you can be the person thinking, man, this person I know, I wish they would, why are they still this way? Why haven't they gotten it together? Why aren't they functional yet? And that's, that's not a judgment we can make easily or quickly. So Martha, or Mary, is a non-functional griever. And so what I would say, what, the difference between her and, and Martha here is that Mary was consumed by grief. Martha was hurt, probably hurt just as much, but Mary is consumed by it. It has dominated her entire world, every thought, feeling, and action. It is changing the way she responds to Jesus, right? So she is in a place where she is just consumed by it. What does a person in that position need? Well, what Mary needs in that position, she doesn't need the big picture. You don't respond to somebody who is consumed by grief by saying, hey, death isn't the end of the world. Right? That is not the right answer. What she needs, she doesn't need the logic. She doesn't even need the solution. What she needs is to, she needs to process her pain. She simply needs to find a way to live through it. She needs to find a way to survive the funeral. She needs to find a way to live through the day after the funeral. She needs to find a way to live through the first day after everybody goes home. Right? She is just fighting to keep living, keep functioning. That's the position that she's at. She's not ready for the conversation about the big picture. She's not even really ready to talk about the solution. She needs to survive. And Jesus responds accordingly. Here's how Jesus responds. It says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Now, there's one interpretation of this passage that actually gets to the opposite direction that I'm going, and I think it's important to, to speak to that. Some people will tell you that the reason Jesus wept is because of the lack of faith of the people who were there, because, or, or because of the fact that they were mourning when they didn't need to. Because one thing we know about Jesus, Jesus knows that he's the only person there who knows that Lazarus is going to be out of the tomb in a good five minutes, right? Like he knows Lazarus is not going to stay dead for very long. And yet he weeps. Why does he weep? And one thing people have said is, well, he must be weeping because of the lack of faith of the people there because they are so hurt by grief, but he knows that, that they don't need to be. And that's not what I see in the text. 
I see two reasons for Jesus weeping. The first is because he's moved by the weeping of Mary and the other people. That's empathy. Their pain is his pain. He shares the fact that they are hurting hurts him. But notice what the Jews, what the people there interpret from his crying, his love for Lazarus. Jesus was also weeping on, for his own, on his own. He was affected by this death. And that's important for us to recognize what Jesus is doing here, because Jesus does not say anything to Martha at all, or to Mary. He doesn't say a single word to her. What he gives her is his tears. That's what Jesus gives to Mary. And within that moment of tears, he gives her his presence. He is there with her. He gives her his empathy, meaning he he cares about the fact that she's grieving. Her grief affects him. And also his vulnerability. He's willing to reveal that he is also hurt. He reveals the fact that he is in pain too. He doesn't put his pain on her, but he reveals his pain. He expresses his pain. The fact that he is hurt by this. And that's important for us to recognize because that is a totally different answer than teaching her the big picture. Right? It's a totally different way of responding. Because Jesus, one of the problems that we get into is we think, because I know the big picture and I know the gospel, I should not experience grief. Or we think, that person knows the gospel and knows the big picture. That person should not experience grief. And that is one of the worst things you could think of as a Christian. That being a Christian means you don't experience grief. It's also one of the worst things you can put on another person. Is that they should not experience grief because they're a Christian. That is not biblical. What we find is Jesus sharing grief with others. By being there, by empathizing, by sharing their pain, and by, by acknowledging his own. That is what he offers to Mary in that moment. That's how he responds. And that's how he responds to us. When we are in that moment, you should know, God weeps too. God's heart is broken just the way yours is. God's heart breaks for our suffering and our pain as well. And there is a way in which this picture of Jesus, and that, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. That is one of, one of the clearest pictures we get of God. The clearest picture we get of God is when Jesus is on the cross. But that moment when he weeps for Lazarus, knowing full well that he's going to be alive in a matter of minutes, that shows us how God responds to our grief and how we ought to respond to grief of others. Romans 12, 16, uh, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Christians are called to share the grief of others. We are called to push against that part of us that gets tired of other people's grief. We are called to be a people who come alongside those who are hurting and are willing to take on that pain because it is not natural to take on pain you don't have to, to take on grief that you don't have to. But we are part of the way Jesus does that today. Jesus is physically present with people today through his people who make up his body. We've got three, three things as we conclude where I want us to land. Number one is that grief is the natural, appropriate, and necessary response to loss. 
First of all, grief is natural. What I mean in one level is it's, it's going to happen one way or the other. There is an aspect of grief that is involuntary, that is physical. You know, people who are grieving, it affects their diet or their, their appetite. It affects their sleep. It affects their physical functioning because grief happens to you. It is your body's natural response. When you get a virus, your body produces antibodies. When you experience grief, when you experience loss, your body and your mind and your heart grieve. It's not only natural, but it's also appropriate. If it wasn't, Jesus wouldn't have done it. It is the appropriate response to loss. If a person is, if, a, if that person is someone you love, if that if what you're grieving is is good, then it should feel bad to lose good things, to lose good people, right? That's just the natural consequence. And so it is appropriate to respond that way. And finally, it's necessary because if it's going to happen to you, then it needs to be processed. It is how we deal with pain, with loss. One of the things we do is we suppress it and we try to keep it from happening. And it's still happening. It's just, you just suppress it. But it's going on. It's affecting you. It's happening. And so grief is something we need to go through. And the second thing that I want you to learn from this is that finding comfort requires attentiveness, matching the right answer to the right moment. And this works for both when you're seeking comfort and when you're comforting others. If you're comforting others, it is important that we are attentive to where that person is at and we don't give disciple answers to Mary's. Or Mary answers to disciples. If Jesus had been there talking to disciples and he just burst into tears, and that, when they were having an abstract discussion, that probably wouldn't have been an effective way to communicate that God's still in control. So the answers, the most effective answers, have to be matched for the right moment because they're all true. But grief is a journey, and we need, and you will find comfort in the answer for that moment. So we need to be attentive. We can't just say, hey, that person's grieving, and I gave them the big picture, but they didn't like it, so what can you do? You know, we need to be attentive to what people need. Also, if you're a person grieving and you're in Mary's position and you've been finding comfort in the big picture answer, you've been trying to find comfort in the big picture answer and it's not working, it's because that's not what that answer is for. You may just need to weep and have people weep with you. Or you may need to focus on the fact that God can solve your grief and you're not, you're not, it's not time to be talking about the big abstract question of the place grief has in God's plan. But whether you're comforting or being comforted, the answers of Scripture are most effective when we have the right answer in the right moment. And finally, the most important thing we can take from this is that Jesus promises that all who mourn will be comforted. All who mourn will be comforted. Like I said, it's not necessarily going to look the way you want it to or happen on the timeline you want it to. But there is comfort for all who grieve. Jesus said this in the Beatitudes. Blessed... Oh, I'm sorry, that was supposed to be the Beatitudes. <laughs> um, and he said, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It's a promise of Jesus, and that promise comes through through the, pre- through the fact that he sends his spirit to be with us in the moment, that the spirit comforts us, and also that he sends his people to share that comfort. So there is comfort for all who mourn. God is on this journey with you, and so is the church. Amen? As we close, I'm going to invite you to uh, take a next step with the church, uh, take a next step with, with, uh, in your journey 
Uh, one thing you could do, if you don't have that hope in Jesus that we've talked about, it, that Jesus offered to Mary and to Martha, today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus and to receive that assurance that death is not the end. If you want to give your life to Jesus today, we encourage you to come forward during our final song or to talk with the staff uh, after the service. You can also sign up for a Connect class if you'd like to know more about this church and you want to find out what, who we are, what we do, and how you can get involved. Our next Connect class is September 5th. Uh, from, which is a Sunday from 1230 to 2, and we offer one of those every month, so you can connect with those. And you can check the box in your Connect card if you'd like to do that. You can also tell us if you'd like to join a small group, a group of people who go through life together and build each other up and support each other, or if you'd like to join a service team and find ways to give back either to uh, the church or to our community or to serve our world. You can uh, decide, make any of those decisions by checking the box on your Connect card and then dropping it in one of these receptacles in the back. So I ask you to consider those steps as we stand and sing our final song. Please rise.